Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Libraries podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy, here with my co-host Mary Stone. Hi Mary. Hi Kate, it's good to be here. So welcome to our first ever Hampshire Libraries podcast. This edition comes to you from Chandler's Ford Library, which is pretty central in the county, just to the north of Southampton. As with all our podcasts, we'll be starting with an author interview, which this month is Anne Cleves. And then we'll be talking to staff here at the library who've got book recommendations they'd like to share. This episode's title is inspired by our guest Anne Cleves, whose latest book, Wildfire, is the eighth and, can we bear it, the last in her best-selling Shetland series. Kate, do you want to tell our listeners a little more about Anne? Anne has written more than 30 crime novels and is the creator of detectives Vera Stanhope and Jimmy Perez, who are much-loved characters on screen and in print. She's been given the Diamond Award from the Crime Writers Association, which is the highest honour in British crime fiction. I find it incredible to believe it was 20 years into her career before she achieved best-selling success with the first of her Shetland series. Landscape and setting are often inextricably intertwined in Anne's very atmospheric stories. Thanks, Kate. Uh, Let's hear what Anne had to say when you met up with her to talk about her latest and last Shetland book, Wildfire. Here she is, reading from the first chapter. Emma sat on the shingle bank and watched the kids on the beach below build a bonfire. They dragged pieces of driftwood into a pile. It was something to do to relieve their boredom. Nothing much happened in Deltanus. It was too far from Lowick for an easy night out and the buses stopped long before the bars closed. The night was clear and still and the light drummed slowly away. In another month it would be midsummer. Emma was there because she was bored too. When she was a child she'd longed for boredom, for quiet normal days free from tension, for school and homework and meals with a family that didn't end in anger, shouting or worse. Now she thought she'd inherited a need for, ins- for excitement, a need to make things happen. She stared out towards the horizon where the sea and the sky had blurred into one and wondered then why she was still here in Deltonus, working as a nanny. A voice in her head told her she was still in Shetland because she was scared of the world away from the islands. Here she was safe in a tight community where she knew her place. If she hadn't been so scared, she'd have stuck with Daniel Fleming, run away south with him, become an artist or a model or a designer. Emma closed her ears to the voice. She didn't like to think of herself as scared. She took a bottle out of her bag, took a swig of vodka and passed it to the man beside her. Magni Riddell handed it back and slid his arm around her back. Soon he would try to stick his tongue in her mouth. That made Emma feel a little bit sick. She liked men, but on their own terms. And sometimes she thought sex was seriously overrated. Magni was kind and as different from her father as it was possible to be, but she still found it hard to be physically close to him. The fire was lit now. She could feel the heat from the flames even from here and sparks spiralled into the sky. Below them, the kids were passing round cans of lager and cider. They were singing some chant she couldn't recognise, something about sport or a verse stolen from Apeliar. Then she heard a sound behind her of pebbles shifting and rattling, and a small child appeared on the bank above them. He stared into the fire, apparently mesmerised. She recognised him at once. This was Christopher, Daniel Fleming's strange boy. The group below caught sight of him and stared back. They began to laugh and to shout. Magni pulled away his arm and turned towards her. 
Obviously, he expected Emma to intervene to take care of the child. But Emma was off duty and she was bored. She watched the scene play out below her and she smiled. Wildfire is the eighth and final book in the Shetland series, hard though that might be for me to come to terms (laughs) with. So would you tell us a bit about what it's about? Yeah, that reading is right from the beginning and it's the only reading told from the point of view of Emma, the, the nanny, because she's the murder victim. And the story really is about a a quite wealthy, well-educated Southern family deciding that they're going to move into Shetland because they have an autistic son and they think he'll get better care there. And so they move in. And I suppose the title Wildfire was chosen before the book was written because the other three books all had elements and so it had to be a fire book. And Wildfire made me think of gossip spreading like wildfire and how destructive that can be. And so the gossip spreads not just about Emma and her possible affair with Daniel, the the boy's father, but also about Christopher, the autistic son, and a sense really that he perhaps shouldn't be in mainstream education and he shouldn't be there at all disrupting the community. And so, yeah, so that's what it's about. Hmm. And uh, when I was reading the book, it did remind me of some of the themes in the very first book. You were talking about how it's a a southern family who come in uh, because there's a sense of the the outsider family and how do they fit in with this really closed community. Is that something you revisited on purpose? Yes, I think so. I think I quite like the idea of ending up back at the beginning. Mm. Um, and so it was a bit like that. And, and Willow, who is the um, Jimmy Perez's boss, is also feels a, very much an outsider in Shetland. And it's a bit about her coming to terms with with what that's like to be working there. But yes, it is. It was it it, it was a way, I suppose, of providing some sort of closure and rounding off of the series. Hmm. I think I read somewhere that you quite like being an outsider yourself. Um, or to be observing from the outside. Yeah, I think most writers are observers rather than participants. We're mm. very interested in gossip and in other people's business, and we eavesdrop, I think. And we're kind of parasites, because anything that happens to us or to people close to us, we make use of in the books. Mm. And uh, uh, one of the scenes I particularly enjoyed, in fact... Um, I've particularly found interesting. It comes up a couple of times. It's when uh, Helena, the mother, is uh, is waiting at the school gates, and she kind of feels a little bit out of what's going on, or a sense that she's perhaps the subject of conversation. And that really resonated with me, and probably anyone who's waited at school gates. Yeah, I think I, part of the reason why I wrote it was that there was one time, one school that when, when my kids were small and I was waiting in the playground and there was a, a really bitchy group of women <laughs> who weren't digging at me but were having a real dig at, at one other individual and I still feel guilty that I didn't stand up for her, that I didn't say, please don't talk about mm. her like that. But I didn't want to be picked on and I was new to the community and I wanted to fit in and I wanted my kids to fit in. So in a way this is for her I think. Mm. Okay, that's great. Um, One of the things I've always loved about your books, and I'm sure I share that with with all your readers, is this amazing sense of place and setting. And um, 
I feel now I have a huge affection for um, Shetland, even though I've never set foot there. Oh, it's definitely worth a visit. I, it's I a beautiful will, place. I will. One day I will. Um, and, of course, this comes across again in Wildfire. And there's this beach trip um, towards the end of the book where in, in Barra, which yes. I don't know whether I'm even pronouncing it correctly. Yeah, no, that's right. But that just absolutely caught my imagination. And when I was reading about it, I was Googling pictures of it and plotting their drive around yeah. and how they got there. And it uh, it does look uh, absolutely stunning. But is that something that you do yourself, that you're kind of working out where people are going? Not exactly, because some of the places are real and some are fictitious. So Ravenswick is completely made up, whereas Jimmy Perez's house in in Lerwick is the house that you see in the television. And that was the house that was always going to be wow. Jimmy Perez's house in my head. And uh, in fact, I know the, the, the man that lives there. He's a lovely guy called Eric, who used to come along to all the talks that I did in, in Shetland when I first, when the, the earlier books were launched. And when the show was picked up for TV, uh, I got an email from him and all it said was, yes, they can use the house. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't use the intern, the internal is completely yeah. different. That's in the studio in Glasgow, but no, the external is the end, so people can go and see his house. But the, there is Mellor Beach in Borough is there. And that's one of the real places. But um, lots of them, there, there is no community called Deltanus that's completely fictitious up in North Mavine. And that, yeah, North Mavine is there. It's uh, in, right in the north of Shetland mm. mainland. So Yeah. And that sense of place and setting, it's something that has always been important to you, I, I imagine. Yeah, I think because I don't see place as just a pretty background to the action. I think people grow out of the places where they... Mm where they're born and where they grow up and it's not just about place it's about community I think because I I'm quite interested in what holds communities together and what fractures them yeah um communities and families and a lot of that is just about place and it's it's I just find it very interesting my daughter is a human geographer and I think that's what I do really yeah it's yeah I can see that yes human geography and I was amazed to hear that you don't plan your novels when you start and that you sometimes start with just an idea or an image because they just seem to be written with such purpose. And is there a reason why you write like that? Yeah, because it wouldn't be any fun if I knew how it ended. <laughs> and for 20 years, I had no commercial sex success, so it still doesn't feel like work. You know, it's still play. It's still what I sit at my kitchen table making stuff up. So I don't feel any real pressure. And I like that slightly scary feeling of not knowing where it's going, but it's fun. And it, I, it is, it's a bit like reading, I think, that I need to know what's going to happen next, so I have to write it to yeah. find it out. And do you ever get stuck? Yeah, do you get stuck, but less and less, because I think there is a, a confidence that comes when you read a lot. It's, it's not, not just the practice that comes with writing, but the more you read it, I always say it's a bit like a stand-up telling a joke. They know how to pace it and they know where the tagline's going to be. Yeah. And it's, it's about that, I think. It's just having that sense about how story works, how narrative works. Mm. And uh, if you would, was, did your story, the idea for or the, the feeling behind Wildfire, did it come from that very first scene? Of, of No, the first scene I wrote was the, the one after that in the playground where the women are oh, really? waiting. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And 
and I'm, it's quite a while ago, I, I knew that it had to, it was a bit different wildfire because I knew it was going to be the last book. So it was working out how I was going to end it really. And so a lot of the writing of the book was about that as much as anything else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so <clears throat> that's, and I also wanted to explore envy because I think it's such a destructive emotion, but we all have it that sense that somebody else has something that you want or that you feel you deserve. And I think that comes through in the, the, the plot line with the two sisters, the, two the sisters. older sisters yes. as well. Yes, how incredibly destructive that feeling yes. can be. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I was going to say that uh, I was too impatient when Wildfire came out to wait for the paperback. So I missed out on the treat that people can get have now, which is if you get the paperback, you get the first chapter. Yeah, first scenes of the new book. Which um, I'm very excited to, to see. So um, now it's... Would you mind saying a little bit about this? Yeah, new it's called The Long Call. And The Long Call is... Um, it's a kind of tribute to my husband because herring gulls, when they call... If they call it the longer call, they put their heads back. And it's to me, it always sounds sort of haunting and plaintive. And so that's where the title comes from. And it's set in North Devon, which is where I grew up mm. and where I went to school, went to, where I went to secondary school, and which I still have a great affection for and still have friends there. Um, and it's, yeah, because uh, I suppose, again, that the plots and the people come out of the place because... North Devon is on the edge again. It's not. It's not easy to get to. And it, people think of Devon as being such cottage and cream teas, but that bit of North Devon really isn't so much like that. It did have big hotels, grand hotels, and people came to work in them. And they were kind of transients and drifters, and some of them stayed in the winter when the summer season was over and didn't go back. And wherever you get empty guest houses, you get hostels for homeless people mm. and you get bail hostels. So it's a very, very mixed yeah. community there. And so some of the plot line, and it starts with a, a body being found on Crow Point, which is where the rivers Tor and Torridge meet. And so we're thinking of calling it the Two Rivers series because there will be more. And it's Matthew Venn. Matthew Venn is the detective. And he's, I think, well, I liked writing him because his... He was brought up in quite a strict evangelical group. Um, I suppose I was thinking of something like the Pl Pl Plymouth Brethren, and mm -hmm. there are groups in the West Country that are still quite powerful, I think, and decided when he was about 18 that he didn't believe and was cast out, really, by his family and by the group. And they weren't culty and they weren't horrid. They just couldn't accept that he couldn't believe in their God. And so the first scene is him standing in um, the, the, the chapel of rest by the crematorium, not feeling able to go into his father's funeral mm. because he knows that he won't be welcome or he thinks that he won't be welcome. And we've got to wait till September, is yeah, it? Yeah, beginning of September it's out. Right, something to look forward to. And... Um I was just finally going to say that I was really delighted to discover, as 
many authors seem to be that you are a real supporter of libraries right from absolutely can't (laughs) wouldn't be a writer if it weren't for libraries and i wouldn't certainly wouldn't be published according to the dcms's own website the creative industries generate eight million pounds an hour for this country and creativity starts with narrative and with illustration and libraries provide that. It was such a pleasure to talk to Anne. I tried not to be too much of a fangirl as I've loved her books for years. And she's such a supporter of libraries. Yes, she is. Anne inspired us with the theme for this podcast, Islands in Fiction. There's something about an island which seems to make it the perfect setting for a story. They seem to bring more to a story than just a scenic location as they've natural boundaries which shape and contain or even trap the characters within. I decided to choose an island-based book to talk about with our Chandler's Ford Library staff and there's quite a choice to choose from. Well, I suppose there's Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe, Lord of the Flies by William Golding for a start, and there's even The Tempest. And what about And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie? That really uses its island location to give you a sense of claustrophobia. And Stig Larsson's book, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, that's also got a kind of feeling of a trapped community. Or there's the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society by Mary Ann Schaffer. Well done for getting that tongue twister right. <laughs> I've practised. And Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Or less romantically, there's Jurassic Park, Shutter Island, To the Lighthouse, My Family and Other Animals. In the end, I opted for a book that's supposed to be a Scandinavian classic, and it was originally published back in the 1970s. It's by Tove Janssen. Uh, the woman who wrote Moomin's children's books. But this one, which is called The Summer Book, is written for adults. And you'll hear what we thought about the book in the next section of the podcast, where I'm talking to Lisa and Lorraine at Chandler's Ford Library about books they recommend. With me today at Chandler's Ford Library are two members of the library team here, Lorraine Cook and Lisa Barfoot. Lorraine, would you start us off? What is your book selection? Oh, hello. I've chosen The Key to Flambards by Linda Newbury. It's unusual in that it's the sequel to a series written many years after the original trilogy, which then became a quartet by a, a different author. The original author, K.M. Payton, um, is a fantastic writer and and I read the original series of of books over and over as a teenager. I thoroughly enjoyed um, the TV series made in 1978 of the first three books. So I was really excited to hear about this sequel. And although K.M. Payton is still alive, she is almost 90 and um, is not really up to having written um, a new book or didn't want to revisit the characters. Yeah, she's probably moved on from them. Yeah, but um, she gave her blessing to Linda Newbury writing this sequel, and I think they had quite a bit of discussion about how things might have um, gone on afterwards. And it brings the story of Flambards, the house, and the original characters right up to the present day. 
It must have been really lovely for the original author. She obviously had in her head what happened to these characters. Yeah. And then to share that with another author to carry on the story yeah. must have been really satisfying for her. Yeah, I think so. Um, so this story is told through the um, eyes of the main character, 14-year-old Grace Russell, who is the great-great-granddaughter of Christina, the original main character, whose daughter Isabel was born in the third book. I like the way the lives of the original characters were revealed to the modern day audience, which was great for me um, as I really was desperate to find out how things turned out for people in the original book. And Linda Newbury's style of writing I found not too dissimilar to K.M. Payton's. I thought the modern day plot seemed relevant and believable with the house of Flambars right at the centre of it. And through the story, Grace has to overcome her own challenges, having lost her leg in an accident just before the story starts. And the house is under threat too. So as Grace meets the people who live in and around Flambards and joins in the fight to save the house, she finds a new way of living with her own changed circumstances. And I thought it was a great way to complete the story. Yeah, and it's surprised me, because I knew the name Flambards, although I'd never written, uh, read any of the originals. She brings in some really contemporary issues like uh, post-traumatic stress and disability and things like coming out as a gay teenager, which I wasn't expecting to see in this kind of book. Yeah, it's nice to see that they covered it in a classic series, so kind of bringing the two together, more well-known, like well-talked about topics mm. of this age mixed in with classic fiction. I, like, I think that's yeah. really good. And I think it was handled very well and very apt for this age group so what age group would you suggest who would be interested as a reader to read well in the library we've got it shelved as young teen so it's aimed at 11 to 14 year olds but a strong reader of 9 or 10 would enjoy it and it could be enjoyed by any age particularly um, if people remember the original series I would definitely recommend them revisiting it through this story because um, I think wherever an author chooses to finish a book, it's never finished. The story yeah. goes on, the lives of the characters go on. And, and it was great to find out what ultimately happened to Christina and the other characters in the original story. I found that very satisfying. Yeah, no, I'd love to do that with, with some series that I've really enjoyed. And then they stop and you wonder what happens next. It, it must be, it must have been great to, to get that feeling. And did you, so did you feel it obviously then worked really well as a sequel? You yeah, said think, it had a I kind of so, similar yeah, writing yeah. style and so on. Yeah, I think so. I would have never have thought to have picked up this book because although the name Flambards was familiar, um, I, I didn't know that there was this sequel. So thank you very much because I really enjoyed reading it. And I didn't find, although it is obviously young adult fiction, I didn't find it kind of talked down to. No. Yeah. No, I've never yeah. heard of the Flambards books before, so it was really nice to find a new series. And so do you think you might go back to the originals now? Yeah, well? I think I will, and I'm going to introduce my daughter to them, so I think she's ten, so I think they're like the yeah. perfect age for her. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Definitely. We've been talking about The Key to Flambards by Linda Newbury. OK, Lisa, your turn. What's your book choice for us today? Um, I picked a book by John Mars called The One. John Mars is a relatively, not unknown author, but he's not one I've come across before. Um, I've heard of him through word of mouth on social media, so I was very intrigued as to how 
his books are. Um, this is based in the near future and it's based on the idea of our DNA is matched with someone else's DNA, which means that they are the one that we would fall in love with straight away, very much like the idea of soulmates. Yeah, um, and I suppose like a kind of um, love at first sight. Yeah, yeah, they get like a spark between them because their DNA matches. and um, So people send their DNA off to a website, which is very much like a dating website. And if you're lucky, you'll match with someone else if their DNA is on the database. Um, not everyone has a match, mm -hmm. and it can be very looked down on if you don't have a match. So if you're in a couple that aren't DNA matched, you know, people are going to say, oh, you're not matched properly, you're going to divorce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, it must undermine your confidence completely in yeah. the relationship. Um, it is a very, very interesting premise, and the process of it is very good. And it's really hard to say what it's about without spoiling <laughs> anything. Um, it's from five different characters' viewpoints, and each character is different, each situation is different, and there are lots and lots of twists and turns throughout the story, which I really like. Yeah, at first I got confused, because I thought, who's that, who's that? And then you work out what's going on. Yeah. And I love the way, well, and it's, in some ways it's a bit frustrating, because you get really immersed in one character's stories, and then you get this cliffhanger. And I think you were saying that it's, you kind of think, no, 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 no. don't stop it there. I yeah. want to know what happens And then next. you have to go, then it flashes to another story. And you're like, oh, no, <laughs> so you, have, you want to quickly read through it. But then you get left in that one. Yeah. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. It's such a different mm. um, premise. And it's also been picked up for a TV series on Netflix as well, which is good. Ah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see with Netflix whether they'll transpose it to America maybe or well or what the casting will be here in the UK but yeah it is I can imagine it working really well as a television series yeah yeah, yeah I mean it's not a book that I would have put picked up um, but I was gripped right from the beginning um, and at different points in the story I found different character storylines more compelling um, and ultimately I felt there was a satisfying ending to it yeah, and I did you, I, I think some bits were, you sort of saw it coming and other bits just completely, I had no, no idea that no. that was going to And the happen. characters are really um, believable and you can empathise with them as to what they're going through. Um, like there are times, you don't always like the character. Yeah. So there's times that you can think, oh, I don't like, why did they do that? I don't, I don't like what they did there at all, um, which I really like. I don't like to have to like a character all the time. Um, there's another book called The Passengers, which John Mars also just released, he's written about, which is based in the same time frame, and they refer back to their DNA. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, so, um, I haven't read that one. Yeah, it follows, it, again, it has different characters in it. It follows the same kind of way it's written. Um, but yeah, that's definitely one to watch that one. That's a really good read. So in, in, it slightly reminds me of the Black Mirror series on Netflix, that they take a kind of technological um, piece of uh, a piece of technology and look at the implications. And I think he's done that with the, his the passengers as well. Passengers, yeah. And it's really it's about self-driving cars and. It's really interesting because I keep seeing things in the news at the moment about self-driving cars. And it's, yeah. <laughs> well, even the idea of this DNA—that's all—that's in the news mm. as well. So it's yeah. Really, so yeah. it's not so far-fetched from what is actually yeah. possible. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We've been talking about the one by John Mars. I'm Kate Price McCarthy, and you're listening to the Hampshire Libraries podcast coming today from Chandler's Ford Library. 
for my choice, well, I picked a book um, which I thought was appropriate for the time of year, although the weather today, you wouldn't believe we were in uh, summer. Um, the Summer Book by Tove Janssen. And I've heard a lot of people talk about this book because I, it was, it's considered to be a kind of classic Scandinavian book. And so I was quite intrigued to read it. And it's written, of course, the names of the author's familiar because she's famous for writing the uh, Moomin stories, which were originally published in Swedish from the, uh, just after the Second World War onwards. And the edition of the book that I was reading is a really beautiful edition that came out in 2003. And it's got an introduction from the novelist Esther Freud, who's obviously a massive fan. And I found it a very difficult book to describe because it's not really like any other book I've read before. Because it's very, it's deceptively simply written, because there isn't really any plot. It's a series of lots of different chapters, all of which have a kind of a little story within them, but they aren't necessarily their standard beginning, middle, end stories. But it's all about an 85-year-old grandmother and her young granddaughter. And um, they while away the summer together on this tiny island, and it's a real place, uh, in the Gulf of Finland. And through the life, the very simple life they live on this tiny island in the summer, and it really is tiny. Esther Freud in the introduction says she walks around the island and it really only took her a few minutes to go the whole way round. But Janssen manages to build this almost like a small universe, a mini world in this island. There's a lovely bit in it where the grandmother is describing looking through the crook of her arm and through that she can see a little piece of down, a piece of feather caught on a leaf and she's just watching that move in the wind. And in this tiny little incident you kind of feel there's a whole world and so much to explore and see. And it's based not only on a real island, but also based on the relationship between Janssen's mother and her niece, Sophia, so on a real um, grandmother-granddaughter experience. Um, and yeah, I really, um, I found it stayed with me after reading it. I do keep thinking back to bits about it. What about you, Lorraine? What did you make of it? Well, I, I, like you just described, I thought that the detailed observational writing really puts you there in that world with them. It's not a laugh-out-loud funny story, but no. there's some wry, gentle humour there. And I'm a real sucker for a naive narrator, which Sophia, who's only six, is. And also, some ways, Grandma, although she's cynically worldly-wise, can be equally naive at times. Um, some of the episodes, as you've said, had more plot than others. One of my favourite ones was The Crooks, because while it's told through Sophia's eyes, uh, with a, a bit of interjection from Grandma, um, you, you as the reader know exactly what was really going on in that story. Yeah, you can see the grandmother being as childlike as the, yeah. the granddaughter. And in some ways you can see that the granddaughter allows her to be playful and childlike. Although, as you say, I think she's probably like that anyway. She's a, she can be just as mischievous as her granddaughter. Yeah, it shows quite a really realistic relationship between the grandmother and granddaughter. I think it's, it's a really lovely book. It's yeah, it wasn't idealised. Mm. You did mm. see them getting on each other's nerves and bickering sometimes and falling out. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, a portrait of a relationship and of a real relationship. It was lovely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's different to read something that hasn't got lots of twists and turns in it as well. It's just, just a nice, simple 
nice story, which yeah. is lovely break from from crime and things. So yeah, but it's definitely one I wouldn't pick up normally. So thank you for recommending it. Oh, good. And because it is split into these different chapters, it is something you can dip in and out of. Yeah, yeah and escape to the island. All right, we've been talking about uh, The Summer Book by Tova Janssen, which is published by Sort of Books, The One by John Mars, published by Hanover Square Press, and The Key to Flambards by Linda Newbury, published by David Fickling Books, all of which are available through Hampshire Libraries and through our free download service, BorrowBox. And if you read any of the books we've talked about today, let us know what you think by clicking the link in our podcast notes, where you'll find details of all the books we've just talked about. Thanks for listening to Love Your Library, the Hampshire Library's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe if you want to hear other interviews and book recommendations. We'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts. We'll always read and respond to any questions and suggestions. Subscribe to the podcast if you want to hear our author interviews and recommendations. And it would be great if you'd rate and review our podcast on iTunes as this helps other people to find us. Don't forget to come and see us. You'll always be welcomed. Whether you've come in to borrow a book, join in toddler rhyme time, or just to find a peaceful place where you'll feel at home. The best thing you can do to support your local library is to use it. I'm Mary Stone. And I'm Kate Price McCarthy.